0: Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's Library in Ashland, Ohio. Welcome to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking with Professor Greg McBrayer about one of the most important minds of the American founding, James Madison. And in particular, three of his essays in the Federalist Papers, probably the most famous Piece of American political writing ever done. Um, Federalist number 39, Federalist number 10, and Federalist number 51. Greg, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. It, It's good to see an old friend again. It's good to be here. Uh, Greg is professor of political science at Ashland University, and he is also the director of citizen programs for uh, the Ashbrook Center. And this podcast is part of uh, those citizen programs. That's right. This is one of our, our new undertakings, This is the American Idea Podcast. And no doubt, under your tutelage, it's going to be very successful. It's going to be
1: amazing. Uh, we're going to crack the top ten, I, was, I would guess, in the first month or two after the release.
0: Look out TED Talks. That's right. Look out TED Talks. <laughs> so, James Madison. Right. Um, he's sometimes an overlooked American founder. I mean, if you think about Washington, he's got a big, tall monument in D.C. Jefferson has the memorial. Um, There was a mini-series on HBO about John Adams, but not James Madison. He doesn't seem to have captured the public's imagination in the way that those other founders did. So let's talk for a minute. Help us understand why we should be thinking about James Madison. Why James Madison, and why are these documents so important? Right. Um, That's a a great question,
1: and you framed it very well. I I think that Madison is, uh, you're right, neglected at the expense of these bigger figures. Uh, And with all due respect to those guys, I think they're fantastic politicians, Mm -hmm. eminent statesmen. Madison might be the sharpest or most original political thinker of the group.
0: Really? Uh, Yeah. That's a a little bit surprising because Thomas Jefferson, if you ever visit Monticello, you see the guy was interested in everything. Yeah, um, I, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jefferson, no
1: disrespect to Tommy J and the boys, as as folks in the Ashbrook Center call him. Uh, but he he was a little bit, um, one might say, idealistic. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas I think Madison Madison's originality was that he he really is the chief architect of the U.S. Constitution. He's the guy that sort of had the vision for what um, the government should look like. Now, to be fair, a lot of that was drawn from other thinkers. Just like Jefferson, he was steeped in uh, early modern political thought, but also right. Roman thought. Uh-huh. But I think uh, we're, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But the Federalist paper that talks about the extension of the sphere, when, when Madison, who clearly thought of his work as a product of political science, yeah. is cherry picking from around uh, the findings of other s- political scientists, I actually think he has a unique contribution in the history of political thought. And that is that hmm. a republic must be big. So, I mean, when, when he talks uh, about the various remedies that uh, the Constitution corrects over ancient republics, he lists five of them. We'll talk about them later. The one the one that really stands out because it seems to be wholly original is we need a larger public. So uh-huh. I, I, I think uh, one more point maybe and then we'll move on. But the Federalist Papers, as, as, as I understand them, are probably the greatest work of political science uh, produced by an American. I wow. mean, and, and I think therefore it
0: will rightly be studied for generations. I, I would agree with that for sure. But what's interesting to me is it, it's not a philosophical treatise. You're right. It's not
1: necessarily strictly a treatise on politics. It's a it's a set piece. It's rhetorical, but it does include some political theory, political science. I think. Yeah. So yeah. it's
0: it's sort of political applied political philosophy. Yeah. To persuade people right. with that rhetorical purpose.
1: And I, I sort of also love to remind students that, uh, you know, viewers, listeners, they should uh, read some Federalist Papers, and then they should pick up the USA Today or even the New York <laughs> Times. Because the Federalist appeared as sort of op eds, more or less, in newspapers, periodicals. That's amazing. And so, uh, I, th- I would say that as it's it's sort of sad to see the current state of uh, journalistic writing. I would
0: say compared to what what this these yeah. great men achieved. So, so as the context is, it's published in the newspapers in the state of New York. It's meant to be read and understood by the average newspaper reading. Citizen, I think so, which is again remarkable, as you say, right uh, the high level of of knowledge and sort of ability to read and think, which means that it's not it's presented in a popular fashion, but is it fair to say it's not dumbed down? Uh, I don't think so. if it's it's pitched at a very high level, I would say
1: It's pitched at a very high level, I think, because of the uniqueness or the the special moment that's that's happening in America at this right. So uh, in Federalist number one, Hamilton, not Madison says, you know, this is a unique opportunity in human history. Hmm. We we Americans are, are have the privilege of being able to do something that no one else has ever done, ever. We're going to get to decide for ourselves whether or not we want to adopt a constitution. We're going to get to decide on the basis of reflection and choice whether or not hmm. this constitution yeah. is well-written. And so I think a dumbed-down account of
0: that uh, wouldn't do justice to the, 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 singularity of the situation. I would Yeah, say. That's a great, that's a great thought that it's really, it's the fact that it's being presented to the American people assumes they're capable of that reflection and choice. Exactly right. And there's, therefore the Federalist is, even though it's in the popular press is going to be written to sort of, um, not down to them, but up to them.
1: Yeah. And maybe even elevate the American people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah very in, in thinking through that choice. Um, Nevertheless, there are obviously some rhetorical arguments in Madison's writing. There are some um, maybe polemical moments in the writing because, of course, there are the opponents of the, the Constitution, anti-federalists. the anti-federalists, and they're they're strong in the state of New York, mm-hmm. uh, as we know. So the context is we've got a, a a political dispute going on, but in the midst of that political dispute, you have these great founders like Madison taking a moment to think deeply through these arguments and make them as deeply and powerfully philosophically as they yeah. can. I mean, think about the Philippics or something like this, right? Something that is
1: speaking to the politics, or some of Churchill's speeches during World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking to the moment, and so therefore imminently practical, but still so- somehow speaking to perennial questions or perennial issues, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and by the, for what it's worth, I mean, Madison is explicitly presents himself as a political scientist in this work. Uh-huh. And so this is... While it speaks to the moment and therefore admits of some variability and rhetoric, as you say, I mean he thinks that he's figured some things out.
0: Yeah, about politics, about yeah, the nature and, of politics. and he'll say that in some of the uh, in some of the essays, right? Absolutely. He and both Hamilton will talk about the improvements in the science of politics. That's exactly right. So this the convention obviously sends the Constitution out in September of 1787. The first arguments start happening in the states, including in the state of New York in the fall of 1787 and then into 1788. So these essays that Madison publishes in The Federalist are sort of over the course of that six, nine months. Right. And if you look at the end of the first Federalist paper, they outline all
1: of the issues they're going to address. And you may wonder, you know, someone who's approaching this text for the first time may wonder, why do they stop short of where they say they're going to Go, and the answer is, well, because the Constitution, New York had ratified it at that point. So Uh it it became moot. So they stopped it. Was it 85, yes? Yeah,
0: okay. Yeah. Okay, so they had planned a number. (laughs) Yes. Or at least a number of topics. Right. And they sort of got to the point where they needed to by the time we get to 85. It would be an excellent project for a scholar to undertake attempting to complete the Federalists. (laughs) Not me, though. (laughs) There's a a great uh, thesis for an Ashbrook scholar. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, let's turn to Madison's writings. Okay. We know, uh, I want to start with one that maybe people wouldn't necessarily start with. Okay. And it's Federalist number 39. Right. He says at the beginning, the last paper, having concluded the observations which were meant to introduce a candid survey of the plan of government reported by the convention, we now proceed to the execution of that part of our undertaking. So Federalist 39 says, we're we're going to start a new thing here in the Federalist Papers. And then he says this, the first question, the first question that offers itself is whether the general form and aspect of the government be strictly Republican. Why is that the first question?
1: I think that is the first question because the the goal or the purpose of the union has to be sort of determined from the outset. Hmm. And um, Madison then gives an answer to that question, uh, and it's three parts. The first two, I think, are the most important parts. It, uh, he says that it has to be a Republican. The United States government has to be a Republican in, other, in, in order to harmonize with the, the genius of the American people. Okay. Uh, and then secondarily, to harmonize with the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And then uh, thirdly, uh, to accord with the honorable determination which animates every lover of freedom. Okay, but the first two are somewhat important. The American people, their spirit demands a Republican government. Their mind, we might say, demands a Republican form of government hmm. because there's a certain understanding of what uh, the American mind is. That mind finds some expression in the Declaration of Independence. A small point on the Declaration of Independence, I, I would say in the Declaration of Independence, it remains a possible, maybe it's a small possibility, that... There are other forms of government
0: that can satisfy the
1: principles outlined in the Declaration of
0: Independence. Right, because the Declaration says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So you could say, well, look, if some form of government secures those rights, like a monarchy could secure those rights, then maybe that might be acceptable. It seems possible, yeah. So I was going to, like a parliamentary government perhaps is possible. Mm -hmm.
1: Maybe even monarchy, as you said. But I think here in in the Federalists, beginning here in 39, going back to 10... James Madison is actually going to deny that. Hmm. And I think he's going to say emphatically, no, in fact, it it must be a Republican and it must be this form of Republican government uh, because other forms won't be able to
0: maintain uh, a a due regard or a due protection of liberty. He thinks it is an an essential part of a good political order. I think that that's right. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about this probably a little later, but um,
1: other forms of government that combine, there po- are three powers of government rights, the legislative, executive, and judiciary. Mm-hmm. And forms of government that combine those, he says, this is the very definition of tyranny. And so, I mean, it seems as though this form is somehow necessary, whereas...
0: So he's closing off possibilities, I think, that were, that were laid out in the Declaration of Independence. Interesting. So, so let me just read what he says Please. that you're referring to. It says, it is evident that no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the people of America. And genius there is sort of that old-fashioned right. sense of the word almost that's brought up in someone like Montesquieu, the spirit of the laws, where it talks about sort of the particular mind or habits that the people have, the, right. their spirit or animus. Yeah, they've been accustomed to self-government. Okay. Yeah. So that the people have that. Um, with the fundamental principles of the revolution. Right. Meaning, again, the Declaration of Independence. I think above And its all. principles. Right. Okay. Consent of the governed. Uh, protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. And then let me go back to this third one that you mentioned. Yeah, please. And push a little more on that. Yeah, please. Or with that honorable determination, which animates every votary of freedom. Because, again, the question is... Why must we have a republic, right? And he says, well, because of that honorable determination, which animates every votary or lover of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. Right. That's a long phrase. Sure. It's a. It's a, got a lot in it. What does he mean by saying that? We had to have a republic because of this. What's his reason there? Uh, so I think this is connected to the first two,
1: but I think that what he's saying is that there's this is in accord with the american genius right that we are sort of de- a determined people and we are determined to to govern ourselves and so therefore we must try our hand at making a form of government that is that reflects that genius we no other form of government will provide an outlet for us
0: to demonstrate our commitment hmm. or love for freedom if we love freedom right as americans say they do and as they said they did in the 1776 in the revolution People who love freedom believe in the capacity of mankind for self government. And you see why therefore a monarchy begins to become excluded from a possibility. We should rule ourselves. And in only in a republic. Right. Well that's so so that helps us really understand then why Madison in Madison's mind, America had to be a republic. I think so. But then the question becomes, what kind of republic? Right. Because there are many different types in, in, in the history of the world, of course. And I think predominantly, as, as Hamilton points out in Federalist Number 9 and Madison, I think, takes up in the next and really famous essay, most republics in the history of the world until America were small. Right. So Athens is a popular government in the ancient world that's small. Venice isn't considered a republic. It's small. Um, many others that we could think of. They're always small. There's something about republics that requires them to be small. And this is what the Anti-Federalists said. Help us understand that argument before we go into Madison's response to
1: it. Oh, okay. Sure.
0: Um, well, first,
1: I mean, his uh, you know, the Anti-Federalists would say, look, republics must be small. Why? A, uh, historically, they all have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, B, all of the political scientists have agreed that they have to be small, especially Montesquieu, the theorist of Republican government. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a third reason, and the third reason uh, is that logic tells
0: us so. So, uh, like history, science, and, and reason. And reason. They, so Montesquieu is this French political right. thinker, for th- those who might not know, uh, of the 18th century, who famously writes a study and says, yeah, as you say, all republics that we know of are small and need to be small. Reason teaches us that. Because Why? Why? What, what is so reasonable to say a republic has to be small?
1: Yeah. So it makes some sense, I think. It's, it's not unreasonable to make this argument. So we're going to govern ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we should probably know one another. Okay. Uh, and we should probably have a sort of homogeneity of opinions, beliefs, maybe shared religion, maybe shared ethnicity. Like all of these, like being similar to your peers will help us be able to govern ourselves better. If it gets too big, Uh, so first it becomes more heterogeneous, which makes it difficult for us to have a shared sense of purpose. Right. But it also becomes more difficult for us to rule ourselves in a sort of practical way. Like we may want to defer more authority to some sort of central figure who can oversee. So according to Montesquieu, the bigger the government, the bigger the population, the smaller the government, there's an
0: inverse relationship. Interest between the two. Okay. So republics have historically been small and the anti-federalists, the opponents of the constitution said that's not an accident. Right. It's because republics have to be small so we can know each other. Right know who we're electing, Mm -hmm. understand them, share the same interests, the same opinions, what we call today values, all of those things Mm -hmm. um, have to be shared. Right. All right. The problem is, though, as Madison puts forward the Constitution, there's no limit on the size of the country. No, that's right. So, yeah, that's
1: right. So first I would say Madison would say, well, look, those all failed.
0: So maybe we shouldn't look at it. Right.
1: But yeah, so the, the problem for the United States of America, and Madison recognizes this, is that the United States is going to be big. And so the anti federalists are saying, well, therefore, see, you can't have a, a large national
0: government because it's all the republics have been small. So instead, for example, they would say, let's keep the states right. as the small republics of the country, yeah. and maybe even within the states have cities and townships themselves be their own sort of political communities. They were deeply suspicious of a, of a large national government. Yes. That would,
1: in their word, they thought that there would be something called consolidation. Hmm. They thought all the power would centralize the
0: national hands. Okay. Yeah. So in, and, and look, that's the way I think it's fair to say that Americans have primarily been living. They've been living in their states right. as distinct political societies. It really meant Massachusetts was really different from Georgia. Yeah, I, would,
1: I mean, it's, it strikes me that in reading some of these personal pa- uh, letters from politicians at the time that they would even refer to themselves as, you know, so-and-so, the Virginian, so-and-so, the, Ma- the gentleman from Massachusetts, whereas now I think we tend to think of ourselves
0: principally as Americans, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. So in, uh, set against this backdrop, Madison has to defend this idea of a large republic, right. something that's never been seen before, something that defies... Not only history, but science and logic, mm-hmm. according to the Anti-Federalists. How does he defend it? This is this might be m- the most innovative right. sort of theoretical argument in the Federalist.
1: Yeah, this is the one where he takes the Republican arguments, or Republican theory, and just turns it entirely on its head. Hmm. Just flips it right around, right? Um, Federalist 9, you mentioned just a moment ago, at the end of Federalist 9... Uh, Publius, I think it's Hamilton Federalist Nine, lays out five things, five innovations that are going to ensure that our Republican government maintains itself as a Republican government. Mm -hmm. Um, Separation of powers, checks and balances, judges, representation, Uh and then fifthly, most importantly, uh, the enlargement of the sphere. We're going to have a big country and somehow that's going to make us free. That's going to keep us Republican. this is the, I guess Madison calls this the Republican remedy for the diseases to which republics are particularly inclined or something like this. Uh-huh. And I guess one point here is, and we'll get to this as we switch from 10 to 51, is that in Federalist 10, I think Madison is trying to show how the United States Constitution as proposed will safeguard the liberty of the people from society. Uh, huh. In, in 51, I think the, the move will be to show us how the liberty of the peoples will be protected from the government. And so here, I mean, there's this clear distinction, I think. That's interesting. Between 10 and 51. How are we going to keep ourselves safe from one another? That's, that's, that's Federalist number 10.
0: So the Federalist 39, you might say, uh, free people must live under a republic. Liberty requires a republic, but then Federalist 10 says, but a certain kind of republic that protects liberty of, of, of of us against each other. And then Federalist 10, just to finish that thought is, Protecting the Liberty of the People Against Government.
1: Uh, I th- I, maybe I misspoke. I think 10 is protecting the liberty of the people against one another.
0: One another, yes. And then 51, I'm sorry, against, and then 51 uh, is against okay. the government. Yes, okay, yes. so let me, let's talk about sure. Federalist Number 10. Sure. Um, he begins the essay by um, talking about the, you know, what are the advantages of having a union of the states, as opposed to just breaking apart into small confederacies, or even just individual states, which is what some of the anti-federalists argued we should. And he says that, um, you know, he says, well, what's the real danger that confronts republics? And the answer is
1: factions. Factions. And this is why, going back to that anti-federalist argument just a moment ago, this is the problem with the ancient petty republics. They were all torn apart by factions. Hmm. And so very counterintuitively, I don't know how much we want to develop this, but the problem with a small republic is that you can get considerably sized factions that can oppress one another. And so faction because factions are an inherent problem in republics because humans are factious by nature. Hmm. Like here's where I was talking about earlier about how I like, I like Madison a little bit better than Jefferson in, in, in some ways. Madison fully recognizes, Madison's understanding of government does not depend upon a people that are sort of decent. It'd be better if they were. He, of course, still exhorts us to virtue. But uh, he recognizes some of the nastier elements in human nature and thinks that his form of government can protect us against that.
0: Uh-huh. People
1: like to oppress one another, people like to argue. Uh-huh. And so what he says is in a small republic, the issue is that a majority faction could form. It's easy to. So, in other words, in a, in a small republic, a bunch of us like minded people
0: can get together and we can oppress people who aren't like us. So t- let, me, let me take sure. that, I'll go from there for a sec. Take one step back for us. Okay. In Federalist, you keep using the word faction, which is the oh, word sure, he uses. Sure. What does he mean by a faction? Because sometimes people might think, oh, a faction is just a group, or a faction's a political party. Yeah. It, well, in the second paragraph, he defines a faction. Okay. And so it's not simply- and Can I a, read that for you? Please do, yeah. And, and tell me what this means. He says, by a faction, and remember, he has just said in the first paragraph, the, the danger, the mortal disease of republics is faction. Yes. And then he says, well, okay, what do you mean by faction? He says, by a faction, I understand a number of citizens, <clears throat> whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community right that's a very complex definition what does he mean it is and and so to simplify it a little
1: bit it's a group of people uh whether a bunch or a little Mm -hmm. who are who are opposed to the rights of others or to the good of the whole okay and so probably for our purposes it's sufficient to focus on the, the first right it's not just a group of people it's a group of people that doesn't like another group and wants to sort of limit their rights so a group of stamp collectors is not a faction Probably not. Not unless they're adamantly in some way trying to impose electronic mail or something like this. But no, of course not. So right. So um, people who want to say uh, like imagine that uh, we're all uh, commercial interests and we want to suppress the rights of the workers or something like this. Okay. Uh, Or one could argue that uh, men not keeping uh, keeping women out of uh, suffrage, excuse me. Men not allowing women the right to vote. That could be something like this. So uh, what rights are being oppressed? So if I just, like, um, Browns fans and Steelers fans aren't factions, right? But because they're not trying to take away one another's rights in some meaningful way.
0: Okay. So what kinds of rights? Property rights, uh, political rights, civil rights. Oh, I think all right. That's, that's, all right. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's a group of people who are going to pursue their own agenda, their own interests, right. and trample on other people's rights. Right. And they do that out of passion, he says, or out of interest. Out of their own self-interest.
1: And he thinks that the the it's in human nature to be factious. Hmm. And he thinks, by the way, and this is why I mentioned the commercial example, he thinks that the, the most persistent faction
0: across time is actually wealthy and poor. Something like this. I see. Yeah. Okay. So that you've got people who, to I don't know, to take an example, I own a business in town doing a certain thing. You want to start a business. And I try to go to the city council and get them to pass a law saying, no more of those businesses can be started in our exactly. town. It,
1: that's exactly right. And so I think someone, you know, a young person, a person reading this for the first time, an idealistic person might say, we figured out the problem to politics. We just got to get rid of factions. Yeah. Just that's the most obvious answer here, right? Right. They're nasty. Uh-huh. They want to hurt people. Let's get rid of them. Yeah. And Madison says, no, no, we need more of them. That seems backwards. It does. See, this is, he's turning it all on its head, right? I mean, the idea is that factions are problematic, but they become especially problematic, according to Madison, uh, when they're a majority. Mm. And so, according to Madison, the way to render factions harmless or maybe even healthy for a republic is to proliferate them. So that no one faction becomes dominant, and therefore no one faction can uh, dominate
0: over others and rob them of their rights. So he says there are two methods of curing the mischief of faction. Right. The one by removing the causes, the other by controlling its effects. You can't com- remove the causes, he goes on to say.
1: Well, you can. Uh, ah, I, okay. You can remove the cause. He says uh, you could destroy liberty.
0: Okay. We could have a tyranny. Right. Then you could
1: get rid of factions. Uh, under Stalin, there's only Stalin. There, was only, there were no factions under Stalin. That's exactly <laughs> right. right. But he says, that's unwise. No, thank you. Uh, and then he says, well, you could try and give everyone the same opinion. And then he says, well, that, but that's actually un- impractical. We, we can't achieve that. Okay. So the Republican remedy is not to get rid of factions to destroy the cause, okay. but to control the effects. Yeah, exactly How do you right. control the effects? You extend the sphere. Okay. What does that mean? You make the country big. Bigger, The bigger, the better, because as it grows, the number and kind of factions proliferate as well, and they also grow. And so that no one single interest comes to dominate. And what you see are people coming together whose interests might uh, conflict on some issues and come together on other issues. And so what you see is no
0: one dominant faction coming to power. Because the real danger in a republic is not a minority faction. That might be a danger in an aristocracy. Or some other kind of government. But in a popular government, the real danger is a majority faction. Yes. And so he says, if you multiply the number of factions, if I'm getting you right, yeah. you there's no natural majority. Basically, you're diluting it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You're no- just making a majority so much harder to form that there isn't one. That's exactly naturally. right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it because of that, you're going to end up having to put more majorities together. Because you gotta, it's a republic, right? We've got to have a majority vote. And they're going to have to compromise on things, necessarily. Okay.
1: Or the, or the, or the
0: dominant majority is going to have to be comprised of different factions, disparate factions. Which okay. means that in a proper, well-functioning republic, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, there's going to be political conflict and dispute built into the system. Yes. And I would say, Madison would say, if you don't see that, that's a sign that something's not healthy. Oh, that's interesting. because yeah. today we think, how come people politicians bicker, how come groups can't just get along? How come they're always yelling at each other? Yeah, and matters when we would say that's a, that's to be expected, and in fact, even a sign of some health. I would say so, yeah. if where, where there's
1: unanimity, I mean, this should make sort of common sense, right? Where there's unanimity, where everyone agrees, how did we get? How did you get universal agreement? People in their own households can't agree on things. How are you going <laughs> I, to get, I'm
0: married. I know that.
1: Yeah. How are you going to get a whole country to agree on stuff, right? Yeah.
0: Stalin is the answer. Yeah. So the either way is some kind of tyranny that suppresses everybody, or some kind of extreme emergency. Yeah. Very you good. Know, post yeah, yeah. 9/11 or something. Yeah, yeah. Where, but but that unity lasts only a day or yeah, two kind of or short-lived. a week. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go back to politics as normal, but politics as normal. With this conflict is healthy, right? Because it's pr- protecting liberty. Yeah,
1: this is fairly novel, right? I mean, yeah. that conflict is is good for politics. Is not something you would have heard of. But, but I mean, so again, commonsensically, right? Though you look at countries around the world, uh, an easy sign that there is not healthy political uh, act- activities is there's only one political party.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, right, right, right. One one newspaper. Right, exactly. <laughs> one state television. Exactly. One, yeah, right. So let me just read the last, then, paragraph or line of Federalist 10. He says, in the extent and proper structure of the union, which is this large extended union with many factions, therefore we behold a Republican remedy for the diseases most incident to Republican government. In other words, we can solve the problem of faction in a way that is consistent with a republic not having to import elements of aristocracy or monarchy. Right. We can protect us ourselves from each other. From each other. Yeah, yeah. What about protecting ourselves from government?
1: That's Federalist 51. That's the answer there. So in Federalist 47, Madison gives a kind of answer here. And the answer is, the short answer, which will then sort of problematize it, is the way that you keep the government from tyrannizing over us is to separate the powers. But that's only half the battle, right? So, right, uh, powers all collected into one hand is the very definition of tyranny. And the powers we're talking about are? Executive, judiciary, legislative. So okay. if the same guy, probably with a mustache, is legislating, executing, and judging, you, you've you got a tyranny. Right. So Madison says, great, so we'll separate the powers. But that's, as anyone knows, that's fine and dandy. Uh, all I got to do is now I can just consolidate the powers. So the task isn't simply separating the powers. The, the task fundamentally is keeping them separate. Ah, okay. So in Federalist 47, this issue is raised. How do we keep the powers separated? And then Madison, uh, they go through a, a, a series of answers, possible answers to that, and show why those aren't those don't work. Uh, some people say simply writing it down on a piece of paper, having it in the Constitution that they're separate will suffice. And Madison says, well, I mean, a parchment barrier, to use the famous language, mm-hmm. uh, does not suffice, right? Okay. He then goes through some other examples. Maybe we should just have periodical um, uh, constitutional conventions, right? Uh-huh. Like Jefferson Jefferson, said. yeah. And he's like, no, that's a bad idea. Okay. Maybe we should have predetermined uh, constitutional conventions. No, also a bad idea. All right. So in Federalist 51, he's like, look, we got to keep the power separated and here's how we do it. And it's every schoolboy, schoolgirl knows this. The answer is checks and balances. Okay. But it, it, the the sort of familiarity with the term probably doesn't it probably precludes from us, uh, that's not the right word, but it obscures from us how powerful this idea is. The familiarity breeds like we just don't yeah. realize
0: how innovative this is. I and don't how think we all quite this. understand checks and balances, right. what that means exactly. because uh, separation of powers we get, we can understand three powers divided checks and balances. What is it here in Federalist 51 and how does it work?
1: Yeah. So according to Madison, um, the task, as I mentioned, was to keep the powers separate. So how do we do that? And and Madison says there there are two ways you keep the judiciary, executive, and legislative separate. One, you give them the appropriate constitutional mechanisms to, to do so. Okay. And then secondly, you rely on the fact that humans are ambitious. You give them the personal motives. So uh, what we need is each branch needs a constitutional tool to check the other branch. So for example, the president can veto legislation.
0: Okay. Uh, can pause on that for a minute. How is that um how how is that checking and balancing well, the veto power as i understand what you're saying is the veto power is actually kind of a legislative power it's yes. the power to prevent a law from coming into being so it's giving to the executive a legislative prerogative that's exactly right uh-huh. very good okay so you're you're strangely enough you're keeping them separate by giving each each branch a little bit of the power of the other that's a, that's a great way to put it excellent yeah what about the other
1: part? The second part. So yeah. we all know how they have the constitutional mechanisms. Yeah. The other part is we're, we're relying upon, we go back to men aren't angels and we go back to the men are factious by nature. And uh-huh. the idea here is that legislators, we're hoping won't let presidents run roughshod over them. Uh, Supreme court justices won't simply defer to the president. Presidents won't defer to Congress, right? These we're madison was guided by the presupposition that humans and especially uh, the types of human beings who are likely to go into politics are marked by ambition and unlikely
0: to willingly cede power to other people so can i read this famous line yeah please do and help help us understand it he's, he's talking about the personal motives to yeah. use your power to check the other branch and he says ambition must be made to counteract ambition yeah the interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. And you might say, well, that's kind of a nasty way of looking at it. You're going to assume the president and Congress are going to fight with each other. He goes on to say, It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. (laughs) If angels were to govern men... Neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Obviously, I can't improve upon what (laughs) That's
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're harnessing what we might perceive as a sort of um, less than noble sentiment. And we're putting it in the service of the public good. So
0: the way that government is protect, the people are protected from government then is by having a government where power is separated, but with checks and balances so that no particular branch gets so powerful that it can accumulate that power and use it against the people. That's exactly right. Make them fight one another, not us. So Madison's view, he says it's a reflection on human nature. Um, looking at Federalist 39, Federalist 10, and Federalist 51, these three documents together, James Madison's understanding of human nature. Oh, gosh. I know that's a big question. Okay, sure. <laughs> this is why I, I mean, again, this is why
1: I began by saying I I admire Madison perhaps uh, most among these this early generation. I think he's had a better grasp of human nature than some of these other thinkers. I mean, I, I think he... He understands the nobler sentiments that guide us. Okay. He understands the human, I would say, the widespread human longing for liberty. Okay. So he's sympathetic, obviously, to uh, a lot of what Jefferson. People want to be free. People want to be. People free. have the capacity to govern themselves, but, but it's hard. Ah. And so, therefore, uh, we are in great need of institutions. We are in great need of dams and dikes. We're in great need of something that can channel human ambition into politically helpful ways, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So that we have a republic that cultivates the best in human beings or that allows the best in human beings to flourish, but guards against the worst or channels the worst into ways that actually help promote the best. Yes. If I could just
1: add one small point to that. Because of this precariousness of good government, because of how uh, unlikely it is to come about, We need exceptional human beings who recognize this and who can actually help effect it in the world. Hmm. I think Madison recognizes
0: the world historical role that he was playing as the chief architect of the American regime. So, so let me just—if what you're saying about Madison is right—what's the conclusion that we ought to draw about Madison as a as a thinker and his importance?
1: Yeah, I guess this is what I was hinting at at the beginning, and maybe I'll just say it more clearly now. I think that Madison is highly underappreciated. His role in the founding—I I think he's the. I mean, he's the chief architect of the comp, of the Constitution.
0: I think he's probably the most uh, serious political thinker of that generation. Wow, that that is an impressive uh, 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 yeah, statement and, and considering course, the the level of thinkers who are there. Yeah, very good. Yeah, but the the most impressive because the deepest and clearest. Yes. And because most chiefly responsible for the United States Constitution coming into being. Wow, that's a, that's a great, great thought to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. Just a, a glimpse into the, the mind of James Madison and these incredibly powerful essays in The Federalist. Um, really illuminated that for us. Thanks, Greg. And thanks for keeping our minds thinking on, on the big questions, the important issues. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of The American Idea, presented by the Ashbrook Center. You can find this episode and more of our resources for students, teachers, and citizens at our website, ashbrook.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe, like, rate, or review it. And of course, share it with your friends and family. From Peter Schram's library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickinga. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook.